Welcome to another edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live right here on Giants.com. The phone number is 201-939-4513 or hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter if you want to talk about Giants football. We will read your tweets and answer your questions as well. John Schmuck, Lance Meadow with you. OTA number five in the books today. Yesterday was a really hot one. Today a little bit cooler. Um, I just followed my practice report. We'll go through that in a second. But Lance, I know you had some things you wanted to bring up from media availabilities yesterday when the players met the media. Well, after we had our show, Sterling Shepard and uh, mm-hmm. Evan Ingram both addressed the media, so we didn't have an opportunity to at least go over what they had to say. And, I mean, Shepard and Ingram, I think, both emphasized the fact that, you know, this offense, little by little, is coming together in terms of what Shermer is implementing compared to what they were working with prior. But, you know, like any offense, the language is very similar to what they went through in previous regimes. It's just a matter of understanding some new jargon for the most part and understanding, you know, where Eli Manning wants to line everybody up. I think the two players in particular have been very impressed with Saquon Barkley, not necessarily the talent that he's brought to the table, but the fact that he seems to have commanded the offense in the early goings, which is always a good sign for a young player and a rookie who is just getting his feet wet in the NFL. Yeah, no question. Look, I think everyone has been impressed with Saquon Barkley pretty much in every way, um, in terms of his ability as a player, um, his ability um, in terms of a teammate, understanding things, grasping the offense. It's just somebody, too, that they're asking to do a lot. He's not just somebody that's going to run the football. He's someone that has to pass protect. He's someone that has to know how to split out wide and run routes, run routes out of the backfield. That's a complicated deal. So I think people are, are pretty impressed with how he's come out of the shoot and played um, as well as he has and really, I think, acted like a veteran. You know, you can talk to rookies sometimes. You know, you know what? This guy's a rookie. He's young. He's green. You talk to Saquon Barkley, he doesn't seem like that guy. No, I agree. I don't think anything's overwhelming for him, which uh, means that if you can do that in the New York market in the first few weeks of your NFL career in the big picture, you should be certainly in good shape. So I think that's encouraging. I also thought what also was encouraging from what Evan Ingram said was, you know, he was putting his rookie season in perspective, and he flat out admitted, he said, you know, when you go through your NFL season for the first time, you're learning. You know, and there were games, especially when guys went down with injuries, where, I mean, it it was an overwhelming moment for him to be thrown right into the fire, lining up as a wide receiver. Now he feels as if going through that may be helping him in the long run. Yeah, he said he basically spent more time on the line of scrimmage than he had before, and he thinks that helped him a lot, number one. Number two, um, he also felt like his head was, quote-unquote, on a swivel, I think is what he said, and he was looking around a lot. And I wonder if all that thinking and figuring things out contributed some of the drops because I was surprised he didn't bring that up himself because I know from talking to him at the end of last year how disappointed he was in the number of drops he had last year on really some easy passes. They were just concentration drops. And I know that's something he wants to clean up this season. And you hope with comfort, with confidence, not having to think as much, some of those drops should hopefully disappear. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Certainly if you're – so worried about where you're lining up and having to adapt to the wide receiver position because of all the injuries. You know, sometimes the mind is not necessarily in sync with where the pass is coming. So he did not bring up, as you mentioned, the drops. But, I mean, if you read between the lines, I'm sure that's all related into why he struggled at times during his rookie year. Yeah, and when we had our cover three question on Giants.com on Tuesday at the Memorial Day, we were asked, I believe the question Dan had was, what is the most under- Overlooked storyline. Overlooked storyline, whatever it was. And I went with Shepard and Ingram being two guys that I think, with everyone worrying about Odell and Eli and Saquon Barkley, you have Evan Ingram coming off a rookie year where he had a lot of production, and like we just spoke about, he should get even better in year two. 
And then you've got like Sterling Shepard, who I thought would blow up in his second year, but he was dealing with an ankle injury pretty much the whole year, and it limited him, it frustrated him. And I think those two guys taking the next step could be so important for this offense because you know teams are going to throw double teams or at least a safety over the top on Odell. That's what they're going to do. Um, if the offensive line proves it can block a little bit, they might have to bring eight men in the box at times to slow down Saquon Barkley, you hope. And if that's the case, two things are going to happen, Lance. Either Ingram and Shepard are going to play really well, get a lot of production because they'll get single coverage, and then other teams are going to adjust, and then maybe you'll get more big plays from Saquon and Odell because they're paying attention to Ingram and Shepard, or Ingram and Shepard aren't going to be able to take advantage of those one-on-one matchups, and then the Giants' offense might have some issues. But I have a lot of confidence, and I think those two guys are going to give teams a lot of problems if you try to cover them straight up man-on-man. I think both guys can get open. They're good athletes. They can get separation. And I think how those two guys make teams pay for the attention paid to Beckham and Barkley could be the difference in the offense this year. Well, and Shepard also is looking to be a little bit more versatile because I think a lot of people only look at him as a slot receiver. And you can tell that annoyed him. When it he did. Spoke oh, yeah. It touched yesterday. a nerve. Oh, yeah. When And there were multiple <laughs> questions on that subject, John. And he was like, you know, guys, I played a little on the outside last year when Beckham and everybody went down. So and he played at Oklahoma on the outside, too, by Correct. the way. So I, I think that he's looking to say this season, Shermer is going to move me around. Mike Shula is going to move me around. And I'm completely comfortable with being located in a variety of different positions on the line of scrimmage. So that, I think, is also an encouraging sign. As to your point about, yeah, those two guys need to take advantage of probably their one-on-one coverage, all you have to do is uh, look at every team that, first of all, has gone on to win a Super Bowl in this league, but let's just look at the Giants, John. If you go back to the 2007 and 2011 teams, I think the common theme is, regardless of how good the defense was, regardless how effective the running game became in the postseason, it's beyond the number one wide receivers. Look at what the rest of the complimentary guys did. You know, that was the big difference, especially in the postseason. The Mario Manninghams of the world, the Steve Smiths of the world. Kevin Boss. So, you know, you could go through the laundry list of all those players. Yeah, it was great to see Plex make plays. It was great to see Hakeem Nix make some plays. But to me, the true difference makers were some of the not unknown commodities because all everybody who's a Giants fan knows them, but maybe players that are not known outside of the New York media market, they consistently came through. That is going to define this season. The Evan Ingrams, the Sterling Shepherds, I'll even take it a step further, John. You know, what a Cody Latimer does if yeah. he solidifies the third spot. If Roger Lewis is able to, once again, make the roster as that third or fourth receiver or even a guy like Russell Shepard. You know, those are the players that are going to take this team further than maybe expectations have been shown thus far. It's not just the Odell Beckham show and everybody watching. So that, to me, is a huge storyline, and I agree with you. I think it may be somewhat of an overlooked storyline because we tend to get caught up in just the name commodities. And teams that have won, specifically the Giants, goes way beyond the top five guys on the roster. Do you want me to give you my little rundown from practice today? Sure, absolutely. All right. So... It was a little cooler today. Yesterday it was 90 and steamy. It was yeah. nasty out there yesterday. Indeed. Just I sweated my you-know-what off just I think we all did. standing on the sideline in the sun. I can only imagine what the players were like on the field wearing their jerseys, their, their helmets, and running around full speed. Um, so a few things that I noticed today. Um, the kind of dreariness, I'm not sure if it had an impact, but this was probably the worst offensive practice I've seen. In, in the spring, I thought they 
Um, just had trouble getting on rhythm. Things were just off. Um, I think Eli Manning had some completions to Shepard and Ingram, but the other receivers had trouble making plays. The other quarterbacks had trouble uh, making completions. Um, it was a little sloppy. Um, a lot of penalties, pre-snap stuff, legal formations, offsides, And there were starts. penalties yesterday, too. Not necessarily at the line, down the field. There was a lot of procedural ones today, which drive coaches crazy because yep. that's just not lining up properly and, and focus and, and, and things like that. So I think they were probably disappointed in that. Um, Mike Jones had a nice interception uh, during practice. I'm going to list a lot of defensive guys here. Um, he had a nice deflection, too. Um, Eli Apple had a really nice play where – the slot and outside receivers on the same side of the field were both going deep. He was playing man-on-man -on, -man on the outside receiver. Uh, Kyle Loletta threw it to the slot guy, overthrew it a little bit. Apple left, got the ball in the air, tracked it with his eyes, left his man once he saw the ball in the air, came over and picked off the ball intended for the slot receiver. So I thought for a guy that sometimes has trouble getting his head around and locating the ball, I thought it was very good awareness for him on uh, that particular play. Uh, B.W. Webb made a couple nice plays. Uh, he tracked the receiver on a post corner towards the sideline and knocked the ball away. Next play, he jumped Davis Webb pass, brought it back for a touchdown. Um, Kyle Loletta made a really nice play, the final play of practice. They do what they call a situation where they give you one play that you have to execute. This basically was you have the ball at the four-yard line. You need a touchdown to win. So you have one play to try to win. And it was the last play of practice. Um, all three offensive groups did it. Eli Manning completed his to Barkley for a touchdown. Um, Webb was intercepted by Curtis Riley um, on his. Um, but I think Loletta might have made the best throw of practice on the next play. Um, he completed a pass to Amber Edetawo, um on a very nice fade right over the head of Jeremiah McKinnon. So uh, those are some of the highlights that I saw. Uh, Janoris Jenkins was out there. He um, had a really nice coverage on Cody Latimer on one play. Eli tried to hit him deep on a, on a go route, and Jenkins allowed no separation. Didn't contact the receiver at all. Uh, stayed in between the corner and the quarterback. And the pass really had no chance of getting completed. So I thought it was a really nice day for the defense. Uh, they did a really good job getting their hands on a lot of football, uh, footballs. And I, I think um, you have to be happy with the progress Jim Betcher's defense is making. And the offense will try to bounce back and have a better day tomorrow. Well, the one thing that all the players have said with respect to James Betcher's defense, I know B.J. Goodson didn't want to give away anything yesterday. When boy, he, he was tight-lipped, huh? Oh, boy. He did not want to tell the media anything, even where he was lining up at times. But because I thought it was in the question that he didn't want to answer, which I thought was actually was an interesting one, not to, not to go on a tangent here, but um, how they decide if Ogletree or Hill line up right or left at inside linebacker in the base defense, is it a strong weak situation? Is it a run coverage situation? Yeah. And I actually think it's an interesting question because I don't know the answer to it, but he was not. No, give not at all. Of that yeah, and he, all. he even, when he was asked about how it appears this defense is going to be aggressive, which, I mean, all you have to do is look at the film in Arizona to figure that out. I don't think that's necessarily a secret. He didn't even want to necessarily give any clues about how often maybe the linebacker is going to be called to get onto the line of scrimmage or how aggressive he will be engaging with defensive linemen as a result of it being a 3-4 scheme as opposed to a 4-3. So, you know, a variety of things he was asked about, which I think were interesting questions, but be DJ did not want to provide much insight. He was more interested in talking about his birthday and perhaps his plans for later in the day.
But the the reason I brought that up, John, is based on some of the descriptions that you read and even some of the stuff that I saw yesterday. You know, they're rotating a lot of these corners in, and with some of these corners making plays, I think that speaks volumes of the aggressiveness of where this defense can be taken, assuming obviously everybody is on the same page. But, you know, it, to me, it's encouraging again when you hear about the Mike Joneses of the world, the B.W. Webbs, the Eli Apples. There's a big competition at that position. There are jobs to be won. We have no idea how this depth chart is going to yep. play out, but beyond Apple and Jenkins, I mean, William Gate to me is an extreme front runner because of his experience, but it's not about the third. It's about the fourth. It's about the fifth. It's about even the sixth corner. When injuries happen, can these guys produce when they are called upon? Hey, look, and BWI has been in the league for a while. He's a veteran, so I'm sure he's got his eyes on that starting slot spot. He's like, you know what? Why, why can't I win that yeah. spot? Yeah. You know what I mean? But, you know, despite his veteran presence, the thing with B.W. Webb is, I mean, he didn't see the field last year. So you could be on the team, but you don't necessarily have a lot of experience. Same thing with the guy like Teddy Williams. Great deal of speed coming over from Carolina, but did not play last season. So you have some veterans, but they've been removed from the game for a little bit of time. I agree. I want to get to the calls in just one sure. second. But first, I haven't had a chance to talk to you about it, so I, just, I, think, it's, um, I think it's fascinating. So I want to get really your quick okay. take. That Brian Colangelo thing is crazy. Oh, my God, really? <laughs> I didn't think we were going to bring this up. I, 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 yeah. I think it's a sports topic. Yeah. The Ringer did an unbelievable job uh, reporting on the story. You wonder who that anonymous source is that tipped them off that obviously has it out for Brian Colangelo. Somebody does. Um, boy, do they have it out for Brian Colangelo. Boy, that is just – for you folks that haven't seen it, they basically think this, they did somewhat of an investigative report that they believe the Sixers general manager, Brian Colangelo, has – five burner Twitter accounts where he would praise himself and like criticize <laughs> players and other people yeah. um, anonymously, obviously. So, uh, wow. That's, and that's he's something. been denying to ESPN since that those accounts belong to him, though he did admit one did belong to him, but it's private and he just uses it to peruse news on That's Twitter. the one that doesn't tweet and just follows Correct. people. Correct, exactly. It's, which, I think, the which, Philly 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 one. Or which would be the called. one that I would admit to having to. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the least dangerous one, of Correct. course. I, I think it's easy to throw it out there. I mean, I will say, you know, everything at this point is allegations, circumstantial, but does not look too good in, in terms of the evidence that has been presented. You know, here's what's surprising. Brian Colangelo is Jerry Colangelo's son. You know, for those of you who may mm -hmm. not understand the family tree, Jerry Colangelo was former son's owner. Brian Colangelo was associated with Phoenix. USA basketball, if, yeah, the whole it, nine yards. It's not as if, now, I'm not trying to give you a defense mechanism for him, but it's not as if this is his first rodeo. He's run teams before. He's a two-time executive of the year with Toronto. Toronto. He was with, correct. So, you know, that to me is probably the biggest surprise. It's one thing if it's a first-time GM and it's somebody that maybe is, you know, from the newer generation. Correct, grew up with yeah. social media. I mean, this is a guy that's been around the block a few times. He should so, have enough confidence. He doesn't have to, like, yeah. go back at people. That, it's weird. that to me, was my initial reaction to this uh, when I heard everything. And, and also, the timing is crazy because they just announced they gave Brett Brown, their head <laughs> so coach, a new extension. Yeah. There's a lot of promise. It's encouraging oh, yeah. what's it's going on team. with the Sixers. And now to have to deal with this, just as we're about ready to start the NBA Finals, I think it's the last thing that Colangelo thought he'd have to deal with. Yeah, I'd say. And they'll do an investigation and and yeah. we'll see what happens. But it's really one of the oddest sports stories that I've seen in a really long time. And the oh, fact it, it has nothing to do with the Knicks, I think, is the yeah, biggest upset of all. Well, maybe that's a win. <laughs> yeah. But, but here, here, here's the other thing. It's been a trend, though, with just activity on Twitter well, and how it's Durant, been impacting the game. Durant had the, uh, had, the, yep. had the fake Twitter account that he was tweeting back and forth to people on. Exactly. Eric Bledsoe 
tweeted that he wanted out of Phoenix. Now, he himself tweeted that, but this is just a trend of Correct. guys not necessarily having a self-edit button in their heads before they uh, tweet things out about their emotions or feelings or whatever it may be. Twitter's, Twitter's awful, let's be honest. Oh, Twitter, without a, it, it, it's, without it's, a doubt. It's one of those things you like can't resist staying off because yes. it gives you a way to you know talk sports with people without actually being around somebody to talk sports with, but it's it's, it's rough. Yeah, it's be rough. Oh, it's a, right? it's a true cesspool, and, and I think it's also, <laughs> to me, it, it's also you know a reflection of society today, where I think it's very easy to criticize yes, and get into fights online behind the facade of a computer screen, as opposed to the face-to-face interaction, which was something that a lot of people relied on. I mean, if you just go back, and I know we're getting a little off topic, we'll get to your phone calls here in a second, but you know, if you just look at media coverage you know, the importance of the newspapers and how you had to wait for the next yeah. day for an article to come out before you even reacted to sports talk radio. Now, it's just instantaneous gratification, yeah. venting on Twitter without necessarily knowing all the facts. So now, all of a sudden, even people that are involved in the executive branch are falling for a lot of these traps. But Twitter is also the place where Lance has drawn the line in the sand of Michael Jordan being <laughs> the best player in the history well, of the Well, it's all facts. That's all I can say. <laughs> It's all facts. Let's go to Orrin. Orrin in Virginia will lead us off. Orrin, what's going on, pal? How are you guys doing today? We're good, good Orrin. How are you? Good. Um, just wanted to you know ask a couple questions. Um, how you know how is the offensive line looking out there? Is it does it look a lot better from like last year? Orrin, you know, Orrin, there there are no pads and there's no contact. I have no yeah. idea how good the offensive line is right now. Nobody does. Anyone tells you that they do, they're lying to you. How um how is Eli Apple playing out there? Does he seem much better than last year? Yes, um, he looks more confident. Um, remember, he didn't really start. He, I thought in the offseason last year he played really well, and I thought he was going to have a big second year. So uh, I'm not going to take too much out of practice because I thought at this time last year he looked wonderful too. Um, and you're not going to know how he's going to handle things until a couple things go bad and he has to recover from some bad plays and how he handles it mentally and how yeah. he recovers. You know, a big part of the cornerback position is mental. you got to forget these things and move on. And I think last year he, he kind of hung on to things a little bit, and I think it kind of snowballed, and that's kind of where a lot of the problems came in. But uh, so far in practice to me, he's looked good. What's been encouraging for me is when he does do good things and make plays, the entire defensive back and defensive group is cheering, they're yelling, they're high-fiving him. So there doesn't seem to be any issues with camaraderie, which I think is certainly a good thing. Hey, John, but um, also I wanted to know who's the second-best quarterback out there like this, as you like, you know, that looks like they could be the back of the Eli, like between the three quarterbacks that we got backing up him right now. Well, Orrin, let me ask you. Who do you think looks like the second-best quarterback? Alex, well, well, Kyle well, has been the NFL. should look like uh, the second-best quarterback? Well, How about that? No, they, they I think um, it would probably be um, the dude that we picked up in free agency. No, no, look, Who, guys. Tanny? Yeah, no. no. It, it is not Alex Tanny, and anybody that expected Kyle Oletta to look better than Davis Webb, he's been in the NFL for three weeks, all right? Maybe someday he'll be a better quarterback than Davis Webb. I don't know. Nobody knows. I don't think so. I don't really have high expectations for Kyle Oletta because um, I was working out, like, uh, last week uh, with one of his receivers from uh, Richmond because I live over here, and we were at a sports class and everything. And I was, you know, actually, you know, as a Giants fan, like, you know, how does – and he didn't really sound so confident that, you know, he, like, you know what I'm saying, didn't really rave about how, you know, good he was and stuff. So I'm not really having high expectations. If he does come out doing something, then that'd be great. But, like, I'm not really over hype about him. 
Davis Webb is the clear-cut backup quarterback to answer your question. Okay. Hey, and also one more question though. Um, I got, I got. Tell me if I'm wrong or not, but I honestly feel like if um if we if if the line if both lines like the defensive line plays like how they're supposed to, and the offensive line protects Eli and gives him time. We can at least go like twelve and four. Well, Orin, Orin, what, what do you mean the defensive yeah. line plays like it's supposed to? The Giants have right. one one. Wait, hold on, the Giants have one player in their front seven that's gotten ten sacks and he's done it once in his career. And they also so what does that mean? They also lost their leading sacker Correct. from last season, which is why I'm asking the JTP, question. Yeah. So what? So, so I, I'm I'm not sure what that means. I mean, like the rush, like we get sacks on the quarterback. We we're, we're like you know the guys and blitzes. We you know like we're. You know, the line, the D line is just helping the D line get, you know, get their sacks like they're supposed to. And then the offensive line protects Eli Mann and gives him time where he can, like, doesn't have to force throws or worry about, oh, yeah, he's going to get sacked where he has time. And then also, Saquon, helps Saquon get some yards, you know, like, at least, you know, I'm not expecting him to be the number one rusher in the league, but, like, at least get, I'm expecting him to be a thousand yard back. Or, or, in, or, or, in, you just painted and 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 thanks a lot for the call. I, I you know I appreciate it. And I don't think Lance and I are breaking any stories here when we say if the Giants' defensive line is great and the Giants' offensive line is great, the Giants are probably going to be really good this year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean I don't think we're breaking any news here, folks. Pretty much stating the obvious. <laughs> it's like you know if, if the Yankees' offense scores five runs a game and the pitchers are the best in the league, do you think the Yankees are going to have a good record? Yeah, yeah, I think they probably are. Going out on a limb. Yeah. Now. Well, <laughs> what, what I I understand where Oren's coming from, but I, I would not focus on. Well, if the defensive line gets 15 sacks, then that all of a sudden is going to translate to, you know, wins. What I think this Giants defense needs to be, this defense, John, needs to be consistent. How about that? How about we at least start with that conversation? Meaning it's not Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And how about this? They're consistent in stopping the run. Everybody is fascinated with this. Well, they lose JPP, so who's going to now provide the additional sacks? I get it. But all you need to do is go back to last season. It wasn't so much not getting enough pressure on the quarterback. It was the fact that this defense could not stop the run. They could not get off the field on third down. So how about we start there with the defense, and then we add the layer on, okay, if they can consistently get to the quarterback, then that would be bonus. This defense doesn't stop the run. It doesn't matter how much you project out of Olivier Vernon or how much you project out of Kareem Martin. It's not going to make a difference. And Lance, the secondary can't give up big plays. Yeah. Uh, this defense was a big play waiting to happen last year. And we, I talk about this a ton because I think it's really important. As important as to win in the trenches, and it is in the league, you have to if you want to succeed. If you want to win consistently in this league, folks, you have to make big plays on offense and prevent big plays on defense. If you make teams do 8-12 to 12 play drives every time in order to score, yeah, will they do it sometimes? Sure. Will the great offenses do it more than others? Yes. But the most backbreaking thing for a team is to dominate a game but the other team makes one or two gigando plays because of a missed tackle or yeah. a missed assignment, and all of a sudden, even though you dominated the first half, it's a three-point game or it's tied or you're losing. So you're right. Stopping the run is super important, and that's obviously something that has to get better. And it's still a little confusing last year why it wasn't good last year with guys like Snacks Harrison and Dalvin Tomlinson and you know two guys that have stopped the run traditionally well in JPP and Vernon. So I think to me that's still a little bit of a mystery. But... That's important, and yeah, pass rush is important, but you got to stop 
giving up big plays over the top. That will kill you again and again and again. Just think as a Giant fan, folks. When Odo Beckham Jr. makes a big play, how much that elevates everybody, the team, the fans. Nine yards makes such a difference. The Giants have to be better on both sides in that way this year. Well, and it changes field position, John. I mean, you get a big play just like that. I mean, now you're putting pressure either on your own defense or your offense is putting pressure on the opposing yeah. defense, and it completely changes field position. It helps your special teams because now all of a sudden they're not put in a precarious spot. It, it completely impacts the dynamics of the rest of the team. That's why stopping the run should be the main framework of people when they analyze this Giants defense and not so much are the Giants going to go from 35 sacks to 45 this year or wherever it may be because I mean that's great but there have been teams even if you look from last season that were up there in sacks but they weren't necessarily transferring that always to W's to me stopping the run is much more synonymous with W's as opposed to the opposite stat Marco in Connecticut on line four is up next hey Marco hey what's up guys what's up buddy? how we doing um I'm doing great. I, I just uh, I wanted to call. This is a topic um, since the offseason. I think it's something cool to dig in on. Sure. Eli, um, yeah, I'm a, you know obviously a big Eli fan, and I'm happy that um, he's uh, going to be starting quarterback again and coming back, and I, I'm happy with the Barkley pick. So, uh, but I was thinking about this around draft time. The Eli and I and I covers the Giants got around the draft and, and who did, and who the media was projecting them to pick with the quarterback. You had a lot of national attention to saying that the Giants should take take a quarterback. Yeah. But it, I was always thinking I because I'm I'm a fan who did not play football. But when I look at Eli, I'm like, all right. For the last like five, four or five years, I believe is not a true telling. Uh, like it's hard to assess Eli because of some other things that have gone on around him, like injuries and the offensive line and, and the way the running back position has kind of been the last few years. But I also don't think that's fair either. I mean, I think you, you do have to look at the position um, on its own. Now, so my question is, though, how around, especially around draft time, there was like such a divide. It seems like still now there's a divide in, in, the, in the media on, like, it's like you're, two people could see one player totally different. And, like, people look at Eli and they're like, aging quarterback has regressed. Giants should have definitely taken the, the, the future quarterback with that pick. It's a mistake, but, hey, we're going to move on, and Saquon Barkley's a great pick. Can't dispute that. Right. But then there's another segment that's like, um, all right, I guess, like, Dettino, you know, but there's other people that are like, uh, no, it's, it's what's going on around him. He's, he's aging, but... He's taking care of his body. He's, he's still played every game, and that's going to continue. And and I so so just to come full circle, when I look at Eli, I think he's never been a guy that's like super super accurate. Anyways, like when he's on, he's on. But there's times where he just he throws a ball, and you're just like, man, that's sometimes you see that with Eli. Or, yeah, you know, you, there's, there's certain or like he's never been like super. You know, he doesn't have great feet around the pocket, and he has taken sacks, and he's thrown some bad balls. But that's always been there. So my question is, you know, what is he like? Like, what do you guys see today that's like, like real analysis on his play? Like, has his play regressed? And if so, what what are you seeing that has regressed? And I don't, I don't think it's harsh criticism on him. I think it's fair. I'll let Lance go first on this one. 
Well, I mean, I still see an accurate passer. I will tell you that. I mean, I don't think there's an issue in terms of Eli Manning not being able to get the football down the field from what I've seen in practice thus far. Now, then again, you know, there's no pads on. But, I mean, if you're asking him to run an offense, get everybody set, his thinking his intellect when it comes to the game, I'm not seeing any regression in terms of that. But it's very hard to analyze Eli Manning's decision-making during the course of OTAs. Now, could that be impacted? Yeah, it's possible, Marco, that that could be impacted with wear and tear and getting up there in age. But until I see the pass rush come his way again or you know how he adjusts to having additional healthy talent on the field, it's hard for me to truly assess his decision-making. But if you ask me, Eli Manning under center, getting everybody set, leading the huddle, being able to throw down the field, I'm not seeing necessarily a drastic difference from whether he's fully healthy or whether the talent around him is fully You know, Marco, 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 real quick, and then we'll let you finish. Sure. You know, you put those two camps, and I think this happens with – we were talking about Twitter earlier. This is what happens on Twitter. Yeah, yeah And, exactly. you know, you, you take those two camps, and they have to be separate, and they have to be different. Yet what you said in your two statements to me can both be true at the same time. He could be an aging quarterback that's not as good as he was in 2011, that also takes care of his, bo- takes care of his body – was adversely affected by the things around the last four or five years. But if the right pieces are around him, can still be good enough to bring the Giants where they want to go if he has the right pieces around him. To me, those two things can be true all at the same time. I wouldn't expect him to go out there and put up another 2011 season, which to me is one of the best quarterback seasons I've ever seen. I think that might be asking a lot because, yeah, I think maybe sometimes processing, decision-making, Maybe when you're a little bit older, that stuff slows down a little bit. Like Lance, I haven't seen any erosion of the physical skills. He throws the same ball I think he threw five, six, seven years ago. I haven't noticed anything different with that. Um, But look, you're right. Eli always has been a little hot and cold from accuracy game to game. Agree 100%. always been his MO. And he's always been a risk taker. He's always been a guy that's willing to throw the ball in the traffic, and that turns into interceptions. He's always been a guy that's like 25 to 30 touchdowns in – what, 13 to 18 interceptions, give or take? He's always kind of in that land, and he's had some seasons that go either way on either side of that ledger, sure. But that's where he usually lands. So, to me, he's a good quarterback. Is he right now on the level of Aaron Rodgers or Brady or Breeze? No, he's not there right now. Um, no, but, but, so but, but, that's I, where I am. Thanks for, but, guys, but he was never but he was never on that Aaron Rodgers Correct. level, yeah. right? Well, I, yeah. I, would, I would say, honestly, in 2011, he had as good of a quarterback season as I've seen. But has he consistently been on that level? No, he is no, not. No, because that hasn't been the norm. Correct. 2011's not the norm. Absolutely. 2011's the peak. Correct. And then, yes. hey, can you get that again? Great. If not, listen, we know who Eli is. I agree with you, sure. Marco. So, you know, you do take the good and the bad. But if you were to ask me right now, Eli Manning versus the other options that they have on the roster, regardless of whether you think Davis Webb or Kyle Oletta have upside, I would still choose Eli Manning, even if you think some of his skills have regressed a bit. Correct. All right. That's it, guys. I'll jump off. I just I think that maybe the criticism just bothers me a little bit more, but then also the, the pure like Eli cheerleader also bothers me because it's like, no, I don't think I don't think either are true. I think and I think the criticism bothers me because it's like Hey guys, guess what? He was never Aaron Rodgers, and 
and Tom Brady is a freak, and and Eli is a good quarterback. But it's like you're. I, I guess I, I really want to dig in on the criticism, and when I hear a lot of the points, I'm like, man, that doesn't really make sense to me. Like you're not giving me anything substantial. And the and the thing about 2011, what worries me about that, and I agree with you guys, that was like probably his best. Is it was seven years ago, and now you're talking about a 30 30 year old player compared to a 37. Correct, but. But, it, but there's like a big question mark in the last seven years because of what's going on around them. So that's fair. Hey, thanks, guys. Always and good to talk to you. Thank you, Marco. Sounds good, Marco. I appreciate the phone call. And, and I understand where Marco's frustration is because he's somebody that tends to, I think, fall in the middle, John. And that's what you were talking sure. about. But when you look at some of the conversations on Twitter, you have the diehards that are just ultra-passionate Eli Manning defenders. Mm-hmm. You cannot say anything wrong about him. You cannot at least provide some rationale that, you know, maybe he made a bad decision. Then you have the opposite extreme. He's up there in age. You got to prepare for the future. He's to blame as to why the offense has struggled at times, and it has nothing to do with the offensive line or the guys around him. And I think, Lance, it's a continuation of the factions we've seen. I mean, when the Giants play poorly and their offense struggles, we get two sets of callers. We get the callers that want to throw it all at Eli's feet, and then we get the callers that want to throw it at everyone's feet but Eli. And we have those two sets of callers. So I think those two factions kind of took the decision in the draft, and they fortified their positions on either side. And I think those are the two same groups that have that debate. But let me say this. Eli this year, and maybe even next year, is probably going to be better than any other rookie quarterbacks that got drafted this year. Okay? It takes quarterbacks a little while to kind of get going. All right? But if you're drafting a quarterback, you weren't drafting a quarterback for this year. You're drafting a quarterback for the next 15 years. And I think that's the difference. You can still believe Eli Manning has a couple good, year, couple good years left and could lead the Giants to the playoffs with the right talent around him and still think it was the right thing to pick a quarterback at second overall. You can have both those opinions at the same time, and there's just no nuance anymore. It's either everything sucks or everything's great, yeah. and there's no nuance, and it drives me freaking bananas. <laughs> well, there's got to be a definitiveness. Ugh to the explanation as to why an offense struggles when, you know, we spend so much time on this show talking about all the different facets of a team to then simply simplify things down to one player is really ridiculous, especially with football, much more so than any other sport, John. There are so many Except other Except maybe baseball. Because baseball, yeah. you, you're, you're the only batter. You're sitting there, and you're hitting it's one-on-one. But, okay. Well, right. I, I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah, there's a responsibility. Well, I, I guess what I was going to go to was even in basketball, the offensive players are playing defense. So you could put blame on— sure. Listen, if a guy is a great offensive player, case in point, James Harden, and he's not then carrying his weight on defense, it's fair to then say, hey, James is great, but you know what? Can we get a little defense? With football— Eli Manning can only impact one facet of the game. Yes, you can argue he's going to impact the defense because the offense and the field no. position. He impacts one facet. He of impacts the game. one facet, okay? We're make, taking it very technical here. So with football, you've got to take it to consider, consideration, John. Guys in, around him on offense, and then you have to look at how the defense is performing, what the special teams is bringing to the table. It's, it's much more analytical than, I think, any other of the major professional sports. And in the NBA... If you're out there with four other guys, they're playing terrible. Guess what? You can still go one-on-one and beat the guy in front of you. If you're Eli Manning and What's he just to do? one of your five offensive linemen whiffs on that play, you're finished. Yeah, You don't have a chance. It's the ultimate team sport. And Marco's right. What's happened the last five or six years 
And I don't want to go back seven because then that brings us back to 2011. So I don't want to throw that into the mix. In 2012, they actually played pretty well too. So let's say the last five, five years, okay? There have been a lot of factors that negatively impacted Eli's play. But at the same time, and Marco made this point, I think he's right. It's also not fair to say, well, none of that is Eli Manning's fault at all. That's not fair either. He's on the field. Yeah. He's playing the most important position on the field. To take him completely out of the equation is not fair either. But like you said, it's a team sport. A affects B. It's a domino. It's a lattice effect. It's like when you you know, you know, kind of hit the, the windshield and you get a little nick and then the spider web starts to grow. And it, there's a domino effect in football. And that's what makes it tough because it's very hard to isolate exactly where an issue is because one thing can affect the other so much. Yeah, but I mean, in fairness, and we've even had these discussions when we recap games. Has Eli Manning overthrown wide receivers? Has he missed guys over the course of the years? Yeah. Absolutely. Have there been times where, I mean, you were talking about Eli Manning and risk. I mean, I can't remember a specific game, but I can specifically remember an image where, you know, he's falling to the floor and he'll still get rid of the football. And listen, I don't care whether it's Eli Manning or Aaron Rodgers doing that. That's a bad decision. And Eli admits that after yeah. the game. But he's a competitor. He's trying to – how about the lefty but throws for trying to throw touchdowns? Yeah. So, on. I mean, there, there are times where you watch games and you're like, Eli, oh, my goodness. But there's also times where you're going to see a rookie quarterback that you're going to put under center, and he may have more upside than Eli Manning at this point in his career, John. And I don't care if you took him with the number two overall pick of the top sure. five and you put him under center, and he's also going to throw into double coverage. And you're probably going to have the same reaction that you would have even if it was a polished veteran like Eli Manning. So all quarterbacks have brain farts, for the lack of a better term. Even the great ones, too, yeah. by the way. They make mistakes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a regression in terms of their talent overall. Right. I, I think if you're the Giants, there were two things that you'd have to wait, not to reevaluate the draft again, but you'd have to reevaluate whether or not you think Eli Manning, to your point, John, has four or five seasons, or even if he has three seasons, okay, or two. Let's look at the minimum versus the quarterback that you're going to draft, you want to be the guy for the next 15 years. But if the quarterback, is your mind is not there at number two, that will meet the criteria of being your answer for the next five 15 Correct. years, then I would argue, even if you don't think Eli can give you four or five years, you still don't reach for the guy just because there may be a need in two to three years to take a quarterback. If you don't believe in one of the guys, you don't take one for the sake of the And that's one. still what the decision should Correct. come down to, and again, we, uh, even if you went back and did it today. And we don't know if the Giants believe no, we any don't. of these quarterbacks yeah. was worthy of that pick or not. I'm not sure if we ever no, will. No, it's all speculation, right. of course. But I still think whether or not you go into a draft with some doubt about your starting quarterback and the window closing, there still needs to be firm belief that you, f you truly believe you could get 10 to 15 years out of this kid when you draft him that high. Well, the Chargers could have drafted Lamar Jackson if they wanted to. Yeah, they could have if they wanted to take a chance because Rivers and, and even Ben Roethlisberger is getting up there. I know the Steelers weren't picking as high yeah. because of how they did the previous season, but you know they waited till the third round to take their quarterback. Everyone thought the Saints are tr trading up to draft Lamar Jackson to get Drew Brees' successor. How'd that work out? Pick the defensive the end. Way. Yeah. So, look, guys, it is what it is. All right. Um, speaking of Eli Manning, i got to do a couple of voiceovers with him, so I'll try to squeeze in a couple more calls, and you can carry us the last 15 minutes or so. Mr. Gotcha. Mr. Meadow, that makes Lance happy. He gets rid of me for 15 <laughs> minutes. Best news of the day for him. Oh, Let's absolutely. go to Steve yes. in Atlanta. He's what a pleasant next. surprise. Hi, Steve. Hey, how you doing, guys? What's up, buddy? Uh, quick question. Um, are you seeing any differences in the practices with the new rule about not leading with your head? I know they're not doing, you know, hitting or they're not doing tackling, but I'm wondering if they're starting to 
teach them how to maybe change the way they tackle or, or block? Steve, are, you seeing, already, are you noticing any differences? Steve, they already were. Uh, this is a change that has been going in for a long time. It's just I think people are making too much of this rule change. And I, I didn't have a chance to listen to your interview with the former official last week. I'd love to get what his take is on this. To me, Steve, this is just further enforcement and installing replay as an ability to levy a further punishment for players that launch at receivers and have egregious head hits. If you're tackling a running back in the hole and your helmets happen to hit, they're not going to throw a flag. It's not going to happen. And they've already been trying. And you, you can, you can, if you want to go search for a video, uh, Google search or YouTube search Pete Carroll rugby tackle. And you see how they teach them how to tackle by keeping their head out of the play. Other teams are doing it too. This is simply a continuation of something that's already happening. So no, I have not seen anything different. Mostly because they're not really coaching tackling. Why? You're not allowed to. There's no contact. So uh, right now, Steve, I have not seen any change. But maybe once they get into pads, I'll notice something different. But for now... Uh, I'm not really seeing much, to be honest with you. Yeah, I guess though the only difference, I guess, is they they extended it more to anybody on the field, Correct. right? Even the, the offensive offense. play. No, you're 100 percent right, Steve. And I, I think you bring up a valid point. I was going to add that to what John had to say. That yes, maybe a slight adjustment for offensive players, but I mean, how many wide receivers were catching the football? Even if you watch the game over the last five years, and then immediately going down and you know, putting their helmet back down. It was, it's thing. more running yeah. backs or that tight I think, end, maybe. But, but to me, it's really more of the running backs that you could see maybe going down, leading with the crown of their helmet. But once again, they're not right now embracing for contact, Steve. So, you know, I don't really think they're right. all in the mindset of, okay, this guy's going to now bring me down, so I should now get ready in the position to bring down my helmet. I think most guys are just going out there, making sure they catch the football and, you know, finishing the play, as coaches like to teach them, as opposed to getting into a protective position. So once the pads go on in training camp, I think they'll be a little bit more aware of that. And I'm talking more from an offensive standpoint, because I think you did bring up a valid point. It may be a slight adjustment for running backs this year, much more so than the defensive players, because... You know, as John mentioned, they had been emphasizing these safety precautions over the last few years, even for defensive players. So I don't think this is necessarily a rude awakening for them. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how th- how this whole thing plays out. If it does, yeah. you know, how it affects the game, if that at all. We'll yeah. see. Thank you, Steve. All right, thanks, guys. Have hey, a good day. I'm going to step out momentarily, and okay. hopefully, I'll be back before the end of the show. Not yeah? a problem. All right, I will move more over to the center, but we will then, unfortunately, have to move back over to you if you make it back for the end of the show. As two zero one nine three nine four five one three is the telephone number. We'll try to look at your tweets as well at hashtag Giants Chat as we move along here on Big Blue Kickoff Live on Giants.com. Let's continue with the phones. Let's hear from Jason in Denmark. Jason, what's happening? Hey, Lance, what's going on today, man? I'm doing well, Jason. How are things with you? Uh, things are going great, and I'm kind of glad that uh, you're the one on today because I was thinking about that conversation you were having yesterday about the kickoff. Okay. So what do you got on um, that? So um, my suggestion, and first let me ask a question, and I don't know if you have the answer to this. What's the statistics of, uh, you know, they say the players are getting hurt during kickoff? That kickoff that we do or when, like, a team is uh, at the end of the game and they do that little, I guess it's called, like, a pooch kick where it doesn't sail high, it kind of just bounces on Correct, the ground. because they want to try to force runner. a turnover. It's another option in addition to the onside kick. So, so that kind of kickoff, um, do player, are players getting, like, hurt as much as the regular-style kickoff? You know, it's a good because question. 
I don't have that data in front of me. It's a good question. I believe, if memory serves me correct, it was something about how on 17% or 17% of injuries are occurring, I believe, on kickoffs, from what I recall reading, just to give you some perspective in terms of injuries across the board. Because obviously, there are players that are getting hurt during the regular flow of the game, during regular hits that are happening down the field. So I think the emphasis is about 17% you're looking are happening on kickoffs. I don't know within that 17% whether, you know, to answer your question, Jason, it's, you know, 4% on onside kicks, 5% on pooch kicks, and and then, you know, 10% on normal kicks. I don't know what the breakdown is within that, but I think when they look at injuries, they're taking into consideration all kickoffs. They're not looking at just necessarily the regular kickoff. They're saying there are injury rates on onside kicks because, listen, there's plenty of contact too. You got a lot of guys in a close barometer of space going for the football, and it's the same thing with a pooch kick because if the ball's bouncing around, you're now giving the kicking team more of an opportunity to get back put a hit on an opposing player or ultimately recover the football. So I think those are just as risky as the regular kickoff. Yeah, because I was think when you know just looking at it on YouTube and stuff, I was just thinking if 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 instead of just getting rid of it, if we do these pooch kicks, maybe that'll be an alternative. But uh, if if you think that uh, in close quarters, uh, people can get hit and get hurt, I guess uh, I can cancel that. But, well, but, but I here's, was thinking it, to, no, to suggest and, that. And I understand where you're coming from, but remember, there's also a lot of risk if you relied on a pooch kick constantly, you know, and then it it comes back to bite you. Now you're giving up field position. So, you know, I mean, there's a benefit of, yeah, the ball's bouncing around. Maybe you're more likely to get it back. But if you are constantly of the philosophy or you're forcing, let's say, every team to constantly go for a pooch kick, you know, then you're, you're now all of a sudden saying, hey, what's from stopping the opposing team from taking over at their own 40 or midfield? So why would you as the kicking team want to have that risk every single time? If anything, I'd rather just kick it out of the end zone and give the team the ball where they're normally going to get it out of the end zone to begin with. So, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I, well, think, I was thinking I think, about the excitement factor, you know, well, like and, if they're getting and, rid and, of kickoffs and the excitement factor is gone. Maybe we can add some excitement by doing that if the risk was a little lower. Well, uh, and, I guess and, that's why I was thinking along those lines. And, and I'm sure that that's something that the league has to take into consideration in terms of safety. But I mean, the way that I've always looked at the kickoff, it, it's not so much excitement. It's, it's number one, the fact that players make their money off of that play, meaning not just returning the ball, but some guys are great coverage guys. That's why they make the rosters. So I don't want to take those opportunities away from players. And then the second thing I would argue is, you know, just the whole field position aspect. You, get, you have an opportunity to improve your field position. You have an opportunity to get the football back. So, you know, I'm not looking at it just from the excitement standpoint. I'm just looking at it as another tool in the shed to change the aspect and strategically change the aspect of the game. So that's another reason why I wouldn't want to remove the play. Well, one more quick question. Uh, uh, does this offense, <laughs> it's going to sound crazy the way I put this, uh, this uh, Pat Shermer's uh, offense, does it lend to having players with a good football IQ or a good football intuition? And I say that because, like, you know, I, I remember years saying we, we were saying our offense, we don't want to complicate it too much. We just want to go out there and do these short passes, and so we want to make it easy. So what type of offense are we, you think, we're looking at with this new coach? And I'll take your answer off the air. All right, Jason, appreciate the phone call. 
I mean, I don't know if there's a huge disparity between the terminology of IQ versus intuition. I, I think they're at least within the same ballpark. I will say that, I mean, I think it goes without saying any offense. You need guys that understand the ins and outs of the scheme. You know, this seems to be an offense where I think Eli Manning's going to have some flexibility. You know, just based on what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing, meaning he's going to have the opportunity to make some changes and get guys lined up and make adjustments based on what the defense is showcasing. But, I mean, if you go back to the Vikings offense, let's just look at some of the personnel. You look at guys like Adam Thielen. You know, Adam Thielen is a guy that worked his butt off to get into the position that he is right now. He was, you know, an undrafted player that went to a small school and still was able to thrive within Pat Shermer's system. Stephon Diggs was also a low-round draft pick. So you got two wide receivers that are coming off of really good seasons under Pat Shermer's offense, and none of them had high accolades coming out of college necessarily or were considered a top-five receiver within their, resp their respective position. So, you know, that to me shows that if you have guys that understand the game and may not have an overwhelming amount of talent, you still have a good chance to do well. Then you look at the running game. I mean, the Vikings, they lost Dalvin Cook, who was a second-round pick for them and was off to a very good start. He only played two games. And then they wind up with a Jarek McKinnon, sort of a third-down back, as well as Latavius Murray, who was more of a power back, but also not a guy that was high coming out of the draft. So the common theme that I'm getting to, to answer your question, Jason, and I know it may be more of a convoluted answer, Pat Shermer was working with not overwhelming talent, meaning guys that were crowned, guys that were put up on a pedestal, yet they all knew their assignments, they did well, and they thrived as a team. So if he could do that with that group, and then you look at the Giants' talent pool and you say, okay, Odell Beckham, highly ranked player, Saquon Barkley, highly ranked player, Evan Ingram, highly ranked player, even Sterling Shepard, you know, we're not talking about a guy that was drafted in the third round or lower, and now he's got that to work with. I think as long as the IQ is there, which I think is evident, especially from just listening to Barkley talk about the game and how he embraces himself to take part in practice and how he is so keen on asking Eli Manning questions, I don't think that's an overwhelming concern in terms of the personnel that the Giants have. I think it's going to be a fairly smooth transition because if he could do that with that group with Minnesota, and I personally think he's got more talent more talent that I think has been proven or has higher accolades coming out of college, then I, I don't see why there's a huge difference in terms of, you know, what he was working with with the Vikings, what he's working with the Giants. I, I think the IQ is pretty much at the same level, and as long as he has that, there's no reason to think that they can't improve the offense from where it was last season, especially with all those injuries. Let's head back to the lines. Let's check in with Justin in New York. Justin, what's happening? Uh, hey, Lance. How's it going? I'm doing all right, Justin. What do you got for us? All right, so I had two questions, well, and one I wanted to point out something real quick before I got to this. Um, people, like, you guys keep saying back to 2011 was the last time I had a decent year, but if you look at 14 and 15, he actually had really solid years. He really only had Odell, that was before Shepard and before Ingram. Yeah, yeah. you're talking about 30 touchdowns, 14 interceptions at 14, yeah. 35 touchdowns, 14 interceptions in 15. Now, you know, stats don't tell at all, but that's a pretty good ratio the last time I checked. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, Eli has had statistically good seasons. Plus, you know, I'm looking at the numbers. He threw for over 4,400 yards in each of those two seasons, yeah. too. So the volume was there across the board. 
passing yards, passing touchdowns, and the interceptions not were not extremely high. So you're right. I mean, he certainly has had good seasons, even when sometimes he hasn't had an overwhelming amount of talent around him, and the offensive and line has not necessarily played up to par. That's not me saying that. Obviously, you know, Eli has his mistakes. That's just what it is. But he has had decent years in relative recent times. So, and then I had another thing about um, because I'm from Northern New York near Syracuse, so I was curious about. A receiver that's on the team. His name's like uh, Edatoa. Yeah, the wide receiver that you're talking about that uh, John was talking about earlier in terms of uh, one of the plays he made at practice today. That's okay, who you're. Ref- so, is, that, is that who you're referring to? Yes, I missed half the show. That's why I, I didn't realize you guys had talked about that. But I was curious. So he did have a solid looking play because, like, if he's getting playing time, that's just really cool because he's very local to me. Yeah, and then also that Riley Dixon is literally, like, from up the street Correct. from where I'm at. Uh, the punter from the Broncos who they acquired. Yes, yep. he has ties to New York State as well. So so I understand. Yep. So, you, so your common theme is you're rooting for everybody that's got ties for, to upstate New York. Anyone and, from Syracuse, yeah, Justin Pugh is, you know, one understandable. of them. Understandable, uh, yeah. So, so, I mean, if your question is what is the chances of uh, El Tatao making the roster, I mean, right now I think it, it, it's very – Hard to tell. I also think that, I mean, regardless of how good he's looked at practice here or there, he's got an unbelievable hill to climb because, number one, keep in mind, Odell Beckham is not taking part right now. So that immediately moves everybody up the depth chart, you have to understand. Now, that's only one guy. So, you know, when you take that into consideration, you're looking at Beckham, Shepard. I don't think anybody is doubting their spots on the roster. You know, anybody after those two, I mean, I don't think Roger Lewis is a lock. I think Roger Lewis has a leg up on the rest of the crew because he has some experience. But, you know, Roger Lewis, Travis Rudolph, he's still on on this roster. Hunter Sharp flashed towards the tail end of last season. So he's another guy that's got a little bit more of a proven track record. Cody Latimer, who was just acquired via free agency. So that's four guys I named before I'm even going to get to the likes of some of these undrafted or unknown commodities. So, I mean, you're looking at a very uphill climb. I think he's got to make plays in the preseason, and he also has to do it consistently. That's what it would take. It would take, if you remember, Travis Rudolph, you know, had some preseason moments where he was impressive, but it wasn't necessarily happening consistently, and then he ultimately yeah. made the practice squad. So, you know, it would take that type of an effort, I think, for him to jump over all of the other wide receivers. Okay, and I, I, this was the question. The reason I mentioned those guys is I was going to ask about uh, Stephen Ishmael from Syracuse. I don't know if you've followed Syracuse University at all. Well, I mean, I followed a little bit. I mean, I, I can't say that I'm very familiar with every single guy on the roster, but right. your, your point about him is with respect to what? Um, so Stephen Ishmael is a very—he's very tall. I think he's like six foot five. He's lanky, but he—he's like one of the fastest receivers in college football. I was just curious if you had seen anything about him or heard anything about him. He's supposed to be coming into the draft next year. Well, I'll be—I'll be honest with you. I, I've done very little work at this point in terms of the 2019 draft. So I mean, <laughs> yeah, my, my, my insight on uh, who I think is going to be looking good at that position and appreciate the phone call is uh, uh, very you. limited in, in terms of this point. But I mean, I will mentally mark down that name, and I mean, I do follow college football once the regular season starts. So I mean, I, I will certainly try to catch a few Syracuse games here or there to determine you know what I think of him. But I mean, to start to speculate what I think of the 2019 draft, I, I think we'll get a little bit too far ahead of ourselves. Let's head back to the lines. We got AJ in South Carolina. AJ, what's happening? 
uh, uh, thank you for uh, taking my call. Um, uh, uh, do you think uh, uh, BJ Hill has a, a chance to uh, start alongside uh, Snacks and um, Daniel uh, Thompson? I don't think he's got a legitimate chance to start. I, I think he's got certainly a chance to carve out a role in the rotation of these defensive linemen. But, you know, Snacks and Tomlinson are by far the two most polished defensive linemen. And I could even see them experimenting a little bit with, you know, maybe moving Tomlinson to the outside. Not all the time. But, I mean, he may be a guy that if they want to move around some of their playmakers in the front three, that he would be somebody that they move to the outside. And I think they're going to look to do the same thing with Hill and McIntosh, who have some experience, if you go back to how they were utilized in college, to maybe get them on the field a little bit more on the exterior so that they can have guys like Snacks, Tomlinson, and maybe even a Hill or a McIntosh on the field all at the same time. I think that's more likely as opposed to Hill taking over on the interior. Because I know, because I know that we're doing that in the uh, OTAs, uh, those three uh, together. Yeah, and they've been doing that. I mean, even when Spags was the defensive coordinator, AJ, they always were looking to maximize some of the players, whether it be three defensive ends, four defensive ends with the NASCAR package. I don't think that's anything new. But, I mean, I could tell you when we've had some of the college coaches on who have been around Hill and McIntosh, you know, they mentioned the similarity is they've got enough versatility where you can move them to the outside. So that, I think, is more likely than perhaps putting – Harrison and Tomlinson on the bench just to maybe get one of those two guys out there in a starting lineup type of rotation. I I, I just I, I don't see that happening at least in year one. Oh yeah, uh, one more thing before I go. I think uh, Cody Landmore. I think he might be the uh, early favorite at the uh, third uh, wide receiver uh, spot. Uh, he was doing a good thing. Well, the way OTAs have been playing out, I would agree with you, AJ, and appreciate the phone call. Latimer, you got it. Latimer has been really the first man up in Odell Beckham's absence. Uh, Every time he's been very involved with the first team. So, I mean, that is a sign that they want to see more out of him. I I think that's number one sign. I think the second sign is clearly he's got a connection to Tyke Tolbert, the wide receivers coach. So you can understand why maybe they're giving him opportunities from that standpoint. And then the third is the fact that, once again, I just named you those four wide receivers behind Beckham and Shepard, and you know nobody has necessarily come in this year with the new coaching staff and has said, hey, I am far away better than the rest of the group. So why wouldn't Latimer be heavily involved in that third receiver job? And on previous shows, and you know for those of you who watch religiously, you may have known where we had the conversation and I was bringing up his snaps, not his stats, snap count for Cody Latimer on offense, and you're talking about a player that played anywhere from 3% of the offensive snaps to 23% of the offensive snaps. You know, that's what we're looking at. And then it went up to, I think, 10%, 17%, 23%. He did not have a great deal of an opportunity in Denver. So, you know, even if you look at his numbers and you're like, eh, I mean, what makes you think this guy is going to thrive as the third wide receiver? And that's fine. I mean, you could have that perspective, but is it really enough of a sample size to truly say that you've seen enough from him over the course of his Denver career to determine whether or not he could thrive in the third receiver role with the New York Giants? I I just, I don't think there's enough there. Let's take it a step further. If you look at the Minnesota Vikings, and I was going over their talent pool. Okay, so you had Thielen and Diggs as their one and two. Who was the third receiver for the Minnesota Vikings? Yet, the Vikings didn't necessarily miss a beat. Were they utilizing a pro bowler? 
at that third spot, they had Treadwell, who was a high draft pick, I'll give you. But Treadwell barely saw the light of day his rookie year because they knew that he had to still learn the ropes. And then even last year, it was bits and pieces. It wasn't necessarily consistent playing time. Despite all of that, the Vikings still had a very productive offense. So once again, I mean, if you look at how Minnesota operated and then you look at the Giants' talent pool, I don't think they're that far behind with who they're looking at at the third wide receiver spot. Let's head back to the lines and we check in with Stoss in Washington. Stoss, what's happening? Hey, what's up, man? How are you? I'm doing very well. How are things with you? What do you got for us? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. So, hey, I kind of was listening to your conversation earlier, and I kind of wanted to jump in on my stance on where Eli is with things and um, and then kind of give you my quick defense. So I think my honest opinion with Eli Manning, I think, and what frustrates people about Eli Manning, I think is you have Peyton Manning, and he's this precision passer, and you want that out of Eli. And in all reality, if you look at Eli's career, He's a gunslinger. That's what he is. He is a very hedgy quarterback, but he's a gunslinger. He's always been. In 2011, they say he made his best throw, right, when he threw that pass to Manningham in the Super Bowl. But if you watch that, that, that same uh, Super Bowl from beginning to end, a few series before that, he made that exact same play to the right side, and Manningham dropped the ball. And you know what they said? Eli Manning, has, uh, that was just a poor decision. Uh, he, he didn't give his receiver any opportunity on the sideline. Uh, and they, they, they cursed that same throw. And then a few series later, he comes down and makes that exact same throw, but it's caught, and now everyone praises it. You know, you go back to his first Super Bowl where, come on, the guy throws a high ball over the middle. Tyree makes a magical catch. He's a gunslinger, and gunslingers are going to have interceptions, but they also give you a chance to make some of the greatest plays out there. That's if you fair. really look, if you look at his career, what do gunslingers have in common? They throw for a bunch, a bunch of yards. Eli Manning is top 10 all time. They throw for a bunch of touchdowns. Eli Manning is also. Um, uh, top in all time. They throw a lot of interceptions. Eli Manning's also top in all time. They have Ironman streaks. Who had the Ironman streak until he was uh, oh, banned on ceremony? Brett Favre is the yeah, other guy. Yeah, yeah. Brett, he was who I would label yeah, as a gunslinger. I, I understand yeah, where you're going I, with that. I, but when you look at the media, I think the media has a lot to do with this. So I was uh, privileged enough to go to the 2007 NFC Championship in Green Bay. I was living out in Wisconsin at the time. And if we all remember, that ended on a play and overtime where Brett Favre threw the interception and we were able to kick the field goal right after that with the game. Right after that game, I went to this local bar right outside the stadium, right? And I'm like one of the few people wearing Giants jerseys. And um, if you heard how they talked about Brett Favre, you know what they were saying, man? Instead of saying, what a bonehead decision, I can't believe he made like the New York media would have done, put a dunce hat on him. They're like, man, isn't it awesome to see him out there Still playing like a rookie. Well, I mean, that's, that's what a, they were saying. Well, and that's a product of the market, as you mentioned. I mean, the it New is. York market, obviously, it, it you're going to really get is. a lot of criticism. But that, that I don't think necessarily is an excuse in terms of how we look at Eli Manning. I mean, Eli Manning, whether he plays in the New York market or he plays in Green Bay, can still, I think, be looked at through a lens where it's fair to say there are times he does things great and there are times where, you know, sometimes his decision-making can be improved. So, I, I mean, I, yeah. I don't necessarily think that that's different from any other quarterback. But if you love a quarterback... Whether you're a fan, you're going to praise him no matter what he does. If you love a player, you're going to look at more of the positive than you're going to look at the negative. So I, I think Eli Manning is thrown yeah, into the same right. barometer as any other player at the end of the day. I think, Eli Manning, I think Eli Manning does a lot of things that I wish we could take back, you know, and I think he does too. Um, but I always look at it in this way, like those same plays that make me slap me slap my forehead and wonder why are the same i've also seen him do those same plays and i'm jumping off my couch like only eli manning would dare make this throw and honestly i would take that because that that 
you're going to get losses, but you're going to get wins, you know. And, and I think there's a certain attitude that a, co- a good leader has. And, and one of those is you can't be afraid to fail. No, you, you can't, can't try not to lose. You got to go out there and try to win. I, I agree with Stas, and I'm going to let you go on that note as we're looking to wrap up the show. Appreciate the phone call. But I, I would say this. You always want a quarterback that's going to give you a chance to win. That goes without saying. But you also want the quarterback that also knows the difference between when to take those risks and when not to. That, to me, is what separates the greats from the rest of the pack. You could have a gunslinger quarterback, and you could have a guy that is always going to put the football up to get his wide receiver to make a play. But he also knows it may be okay to do that in the middle of the second quarter, right before the end of the half or when they have a lead, as opposed to doing it when you got the final drive in the fourth quarter, and sometimes the conservative route is the better approach. So circumstance Game strategy is something you have to take into consideration when you want to have that conversation. All right, that is going to wrap things up for us here today on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Certainly appreciate all the phone calls, all the tweets. We'll be back up and running tomorrow at noon Eastern as we will take you through the latest from OTAs as the Giants are going to have another OTA tomorrow, so we'll keep you up to date on that and hear from Paul Dettino and I as we will be steering the ship. John Schmelk is certainly not here, but he is going to bid you goodbye as well as I will. Oh, look at this. He wants to come back to wave. So see, John Schmelk did make an appearance, but he was a little late to the ceremony to get hopping back on the mic. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday here on Giants.com. We'll speak to you tomorrow. Have a good one.